0: It's so good to be here. Good morning. I can tell you a church with high amounts of faith inviting a complete random to come and speak to you about whatever he fancies, so I appreciate that. And actually, um, I grew up in Forest Hill. I was born in Tooting and grew up in Forest Hill, so I do feel kind of local um, driving along the South Circular this morning to get here. Um, But as, uh, as Ben said, I live in Cape Town now and have been in Cape Town for the last 10 years, um, and we'll tell you a little bit about that um, but that's not my primary reason for being here my reason for being here this morning is to just preach the Word of God if that's all right um, and we're going to look at uh, a passage in John 21 but first uh, yeah I just want to give you a little bit of an intro so um, uh, and I've got some friends of mine in the second row here as well join a B and James uh, join Abi are also part of our community in Cape Town um, now What I want to speak about could sound a little bit heavy this morning, but hopefully it's really not. Um, uh, I once heard someone say the Holy Spirit's really serious about joy, and I thought, yeah, that works, doesn't it? Uh, And the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, and I think as we begin to... um, Cultivate and inculcate joy within inside of ourselves. It obviously comes out of us, and um, that gives us the, the strength, because the joy of the Lord is our strength, and that gives us a strong foundation to go to the deep places. Amen. Amen. Great. Let's get a bit of interaction going. Amen. Yes. Awesome. And so here's the thing: if we've got words over us, and if you guys have got words over you around resurrection, what precedes resurrection? Oh gosh death but we could talk about death with a smile on our face because we were singing this morning death where's your sting where's your victory as we were standing in worship I, uh, I just I just felt the, the Holy Spirit so deeply as we sang um, this is the air I breathe um, because what I spend most of my life doing is living in a township uh, on the outskirts of Cape Town a place called Manenberg, uh, a place that you probably won't have heard of and there's no reason why you should it was a place that shouldn't really exist. It was created by the apartheid government in the 60s and 70s for people of color whose homes were bulldozed and who were forcibly removed outside of the city center. And a rather inevitable collective trauma response to having your home bulldozed is the rising up of gangs. I will defend my turf at all costs. You're not going to get me this time. And so we live in a, um, in a community called Mannenberg that is really struggling and really hurting Uh, with a gang pandemic. Earlier this year, Cape Town uh, uh, got the rather notorious uh, rank of being number one in the world for homicides. We're struggling with up to 50 murders a week in a city of 4 million people. So we need your prayers. Beautiful as it is, and tourist attraction as it is, it's a painful place to live. But we believe that living in a place where those were thrown out on the margins or so-called margins of society is not a particularly radical thing to do. My wife Sarah and I believe that inviting gangsters and drug addicts to come and live in our home with us as we reparent them into fullness and freedom and faith is not a very radical thing to do but is utterly reasonable as a response for the gospel. And as we see the old man die, the gangster and the drug addict, cold turkeying off heroin or crystal meth, and rising up, we see a resurrection and we see young men, 18 to 25, growing into this awareness of the prophetic and spiritual DNA that the Father has placed in them. And we realize that, no, you were never made to shoot guns and kill people and smoke drugs. You were made to be a beloved child of the King. And so all of that to say, it resonated when we sang, This is the air I breathe because we'll regularly just sing that together, Sarah and I and um, these young men who live with us, and we'll weep and we'll weep and we'll weep as we, as we meditate on how saved we really are. Because for the, for the young guys who come and live with us, who have gone through all sorts of unspeakable things and done all sorts of unspeakable things, there really is no gray area in the middle. It's either death and gangs and addiction or Jesus and life. Those are the two options. Now, I've got a short film I want to show you. It's about two minutes long. Um, It looks like I'm trying to sell you a product at the end. Please bear in mind, that's not the point of me showing it this morning. I want to give you a two minute snapshot into the faces and places of where we spend our life. So, if we could um, show that, that would be wonderful. Thank you. With sound, preferably. to change the story. A vision from the heart of God, growing community and restoring worth in forgotten places. We all have a journey marked out ahead. There'll be both victories and tragedies. Where will yours lead and what trials will you face along the way? The voice of God deep within is beckoning us into adventures as yet unknown. whole-hearted lives, so costly but relentlessly hopeful. Could another world be calling a compelling new reality where walls are torn down and friendships built? Where myths are exposed and unheard voices listened to? The old order of things made new, But what of the cost, the accusation, the despair, the choruses of it can't be done? We can choose what to believe, to rise up above the pointing fingers of accusation and the shrugs of indifference. The stories we live in are the stories we live out. What if yours is a story that the world is crying out to hear? Because ultimately, There is no neutral ground. Cape Town's the most racially segregated city in the most economically unequal country on earth. When we say there's no neutral ground, there really isn't. But what we're beginning to learn, and as we begin to invade systems of injustice with the joy of the Holy Spirit as our strength, we begin to see two dichotomies, theologically speaking, collide and come together in a prophetic third way. And I've got a prophetic word for you guys um, as a church. And what I see is that, um, you'll know what I mean, I suppose, by revivalism. Our charismatic, Holy Spirit-fueled encounter with Jesus. Revival, transforming society. We think of Azusa or the Hebrides or the Welsh revival, right? Revivalism on the one end of the spectrum. And on the other end, activism. Activism. Political advocacy, socio-political analysis, um, uh, Christians Against Poverty, you know, like invading the systems and the the systemic injustice of our world. And what I see on you guys is revivalism and activism colliding. I see that over you. I felt it the moment I walked in. And what I see is that you're going to be part of uniting a dichotomized church where one uh, 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 wing of it, as it were, will, will go after that. My Jesus, my healing, my destiny, my revival. And, 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 and yes, I'm a love child of God. And yes, God's in a good mood. Amen? And on this side of things, my goodness, sin is not just personal. Jesus came to liberate us from political oppression and sisters of injustice. And when we pray for justice but uphold unjust systems, we should be praying for mercy rather than justice. And what about fair trade? And what about the environment? And is God in a good mood that 29,000 African children die daily of curable diseases? Right? And so both ends of this spectrum have got to come together, fueled by the personal prophetic that's going to then... Spill over, the dam's going to break into the systemic prophetic. And I see you guys, um, though I don't know you, I see you guys holding those things, not as attention, but as a beautiful picture. And, and Danny, I see that, that I, I feel that um, God's got, um, you're sitting on a song or songs at the moment, maybe a melody, and I feel like there's something uh, that, that you're going to write in, in the coming days that is actually going to uh, speak of this thing, is actually going to declare this thing. The dichotomy, uh, calling time on theological dichotomies and saying, no, the prophetic third way was the way of Jesus and releasing that song over a generation. And the, the final thing I see is... Um, I was thinking about a steep ski slope. I didn't do this skiing. I did it playing football, in case you are just a catch-all answer for anyone who's going to ask. Playing football is fine. And um, and what I see is just a really icy slope, and you guys, St. Peter's are at the top looking down with your skis on. And I don't know if any of you do ski. I haven't skied in years and years and years, but trying to turn on ice is really hard work, and the Lord's just saying, go straight. Go straight. The quickest way to your destination is straight. You go, no, it's too fast. I can't deal with it. He's saying, go straight, and I'll add to your number. And these transepts, they're going to be full. And, um, and, and because you're epitomizing the third way in between these theological dichotomies and because you're refusing to turn to the left or the right when you know that he's gone before you. Amen? So that's for you guys. I've had a week in London. I'm going back to Cape Town tonight, and I have been struck by, um, in conversations I've had, I've been struck by the amount of pain people are carrying. Um, we all carry pain, right? And some of us are, are along the journey of Jesus liberating us from that. When were you saved? Well, I was saved on the 18th of August 2000. I'm currently being saved day by day, renewed by the Holy Spirit. And one day, When I die, that will be my real birthday, and that's when I'm finally saved. Amen? And so we are are being saved. Being saved is a continual thing, right? But when we come to faith, that's the beginning, that's not the end. That's the problem, isn't it, with going in places. Fifteen people raise their hands, amen, come on, brilliant. That's the beginning, not the end, right? We know that much. And so as we're being saved, God is liberating us. Jesus is healing us from the agony and the pain. This is what the gangsters and drug addicts are teaching us in Mannenberg, Sarah and I, um, as we reparent them into fullness, is that actually we've just become really adept at hiding our pain. And honestly, if you're addicted to crystal meth and hardcore porn, like, that's really hard to, uh, to hide. But if you're addicted to emails, productivity, and people-pleasing, we can hide that a bit better, right? A couple of nervous nods. People know what I'm talking about. there's a quote by a guy called Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. The polarized Brexit stuff, the, the anxiety and mental health issues that are taking over modern society. If only we knew half of what even our enemy was holding in their heart, we would be radically kinder than we are. And so Mannenberg, Manenberg, as I say, shouldn't exist. Manenberg is a community at perpetual civil war with itself. It's a community of PTSD and traumatized uh, uh, narratives. People don't even necessarily know in the community at large because people don't have access to the healthcare that would tell them that they are traumatized or depressed. And yet we live there and we generate relentless hope day by day, knowing that God's grace is sufficient just for today. Just for today, Narcotics Anonymous tells us "Anonymous tells us there is grace. His mercies are new every morning. Amen? If you woke up exhausted and thinking, I don't know if I can do this church thing this morning, well, let me tell you, his mercies are new over you today. And you'll get to the end of today and you may feel finished. But good news, tomorrow, his mercies are new every day. And so we're looking at how do we seek the peace of the city that God's called us to? How do we put back together this like sort of demonic botched face job of a city where people have been put, uh, divided by railway lines and highways depending on race and socioeconomic status? Sure, that's everywhere. But you know, the thing about apartheid was that it was a theologically founded project. If there's any argument for diligent and uh, 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 wise theological study. Let apartheid be the warning that when you go wonky, it goes really bad, okay? Um, and we're working, how do we put all these pieces together? Maybe we just carry on. We just try, you know, we won the World Cup. South Africa won the World Cup. Don't mention it, but it's great. And um, maybe that will change the nation. And it was a, it was a black captain who, 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 who held it in a, a traditionally white sport. That's the revival we're talking about. What a patronizing thing we might think that the idea of the eternal agony of hundreds of years of colonial oppression and all the rest of it would be uh, uh, we just put a sticking plaster over that and say, yeah, but we won the World Cup. Of course not. C.S. Lewis puts it uh, like this. He said a sum, like a maths sum, can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point. I'm no mathematician, but I know that the longer you go in error in a sum, the further away you get from the answer. He says, you never solve the sum simply by going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. And as we saw with these Theological dichotomies. Jesus is not only here for the systemic injustice, for us to invade with creative, prophetic, subversive solutions as a people on mission together, but also he's come to heal my heart that's in agony around the trauma and neglect and love deficits and whatever else I might be carrying. It's both and. And so in the same way that he wants to put society back together and we can't just undo apartheid by winning a World Cup and singing "Kosi Sikalele Africa, at the same time we can't just jump up and down, scream hallelujah as a sort of Pentecostal varnish over our deep agony. Amen? Amen. Okay, great. (laughs) You kind of have to now every time I say that, don't you? So if we're being renewed inwardly day by day, you know what that means? It means we're all being rehabilitated. We're being rehabilitated from old desires, from lies that we've listened to, to coping mechanisms and destructive behaviors. I'm learning all of this, by the way, from gangsters and drug addicts. They're teaching me. And if that's the case, then welcome to rehab. Because we are all in rehab. And we're going to look at a little passage in John chapter 21. Um. It's entitled in my Bible, Jesus and the Miraculous Catch of Fish. I think it should really be entitled Peter Begins His Recovery Process. But like you know in John 8, where it says um, uh, 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 a woman is caught in adultery. And really that should read Pharisees are caught with stones in their hand. Right? So don't only those those things were added later. We don't have to believe them. Peter's recovery journey. So I'm not going to read the whole passage out to you, but I'm sure you'll know it, and I, I, this is the first time i preached this message, and I felt like it's a word for you guys today. If it's not, I got it wrong, and it's the word of God, so hopefully it'll still speak. But this is the third time now that, uh, that Jesus d- appears to his disciples post-resurrection. Hello. And... Um, we'll often relapse back into old behaviors and he needs to appear to us again just to remind us of his truth. The, the disciples are out fishing. What have they done? Three years touching and tasting and walking breath-smellingly close to heaven on earth and what happens? Relapse. Back to your old life. Back to your old behaviors. And they're, they're fishing. That's all they knew. Of course you would, right? But um, um, Jesus appears to them. They'd gone back to their old life and this should shock us, by the way, There should be a a healthy, you cannot stay where you are in your faith. Either you're going back or you're going forward. It should shock us that three years with Jesus and they still went back to what they knew. That should shock us and hopefully not scare us, but inspire us to keep pressing on. Have I achieved it yet? Is it everything? No. But is it something? Yes, and I'm going to keep going. I haven't grasped entirely, but I'm going to uh, because I'm on a heavenward trajectory. And then they, they, they've, been, they've been fishing all night, doing what they know in their own strength. Church can feel like that sometimes, can't it? When we kind of forget the fact that the Holy Spirit is enthused about doing things and turning up in a spontaneous basis. I heard Graham Cook once say that the Holy Spirit is a combination between Mother Teresa and Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. You can't, can't fault him uh, morally, and you cannot push him down physically. He's enthusiastically, he is unabashed in his enthusiasm for each one of us. Amen? The Holy Spirit likes you. That's good news. And so (laughs) Jesus is standing on the beach. The disciples have gone back to fishing. They've been doing it all night, caught nothing. He stands on the beach and shouts, Hi, have you caught anything yet? No, nothing. Cast your net on the other side. Does anyone know the number of fish they caught? John tells us, they caught 153 fish. Now, if we know exactly the number of fish they caught, what does that mean? They counted them. Can you imagine when they finally get to shore, turning up, and the, the miracle of it was that the nets didn't break, so apparently nets should break after 100 fish. And, um, and they got 153 fish, and you can imagine them, they're slamming the fish down and just laughing with Jesus in absolute hilarity. 152, 153, that's a record. Let's write, John, write that down so that people in Broccoli know about it, right? And you can just imagine the childlike joy of just like, oh, my days, Jesus is back. This is phenomenal. But how do they recognize it? Because of his miraculous word of knowledge. Do that. And John, the, disciple, John, the guy who writes the book and always talks about the disciple Jesus loves. So you're like, all right, mate, you've got nothing to prove. It's fine. Um, but he goes, um, he recognizes, he shouts, it's the Lord. And what does Peter do? He jumps straight in and swims all the way to the shore and sees Jesus. John had this intimate familiarity, familiarity doesn't even quite cut it as a word, this intimacy with the Savior that the moment he sees, wait, I know someone who used to do that. Uh, God, you know what, long, but yeah, must be Jesus. And then Peter jumps in, doesn't need any, any second invitation because Peter is desperately hungry. What did we sing today? I'm desperate for you. What's the other one? I'm lost without you. John's like, I'm lost without Jesus. Where is he? Oh, I recognize that miraculous word of knowledge. There he is. And Peter's like, I'm desperate for you. I'm coming. He gets to the shore and Jesus is doing what? Got a little, um, little brekkie going. Lovely. Plans ahead. And the rest of the disciples come. But as you can imagine G- uh, uh, Peter getting to the shore, dripping immediately goes, gives Jesus this like soaking hug and looking at him. And then you can imagine him just smelling the the, the coals, the fire. Now where would he last have seen Jesus with the smell of coals in his nostrils? When he's sitting around a fire at the trial of his savior and dear friend, denying him and betraying him three times can imagine this flashback coming there's just this memory of oh god this complete shame just suddenly overtaking him and then the trauma of watching jesus on the cross and thinking i did nothing nothing to stop that happening it all comes flooding back and you can imagine him just going silent as the other disciples come. Maybe they're doing this hilarious counting of the fish and Peter's now withdrawn, just looking into the embers and just thinking, what the hell? How am I going to get free from this? And then what? Jesus starts handing out the fish and the bread and what, what else does he do? He asks them, guys, can I have some of your fish? He's already got fish on the fire, but it's just the sort of person that Jesus is that he says, listen, I've got a plan, we're sorted, but if you can contribute something to it, that would be really ace, Okay, so whatever you've got to contribute, Jesus will use. And he hands out fish and bread. And you can imagine Peter staring there and he's just shut off now and the others are joking and they kind of notice, but like, you know, he's a bit hot-headed, so don't talk to him about it. And then he's "Oh, fish and bread. Oh, flippin' heck. I remember that time when, when Jesus multiplied that little boy's lunch and we saw these wacky miracles going down all over. How on earth could I have seen the the miraculous and the supernatural break in and still have done what I've done. I'm so full of shame. I'm so embarrassed. If anybody knew, they would hate me. And Jesus has obviously clocked all of this. In verse 15, he addresses Peter directly. And he says to Peter, um, let's have a look. Simon, son of John, do do you truly love me more than these? which sounds like a bit of a provocative statement because they both know what they're thinking. He goes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he asks him again, yes, you know I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. So I don't know him. Do you know this guy? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Has turned into, I love him. I love him. I love him. And in that instant process, is delivered from this self-hatred. He's delivered from this shame. It's a continuation of his inner, inner healing process that began the day he began to follow Jesus. And so we see a wet blanket turning into a rock. Another miracle. Who can turn wet blankets into rocks? Well, Jesus can. And then in verse 18, Peter, uh, Jesus says something bizarre to Peter. He says to him, Verse 18, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Now, I was looking this up because I've always been puzzled by this, but you know what Jesus is doing? He's actually prophesying over Peter, and it's not the most cozy prophetic word, because you'll probably know that in AD 65, under Emperor Nero, Peter was martyred for the gospel. And one imagines that he would have stretched out his hands to have been tied together. And you'll imagine that someone else would have dressed him in the executioner's robe. And you'd imagine that he would have been led somewhere he didn't want to go. And so Jesus is saying to him, Jesus has healed him from his trauma and shame, healed him from his self-hatred and diminishment, healed him from the traumatic memories of his past, And then prophesied, essentially prophesied death over him. Heavy. Then what happens? John walks past. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. And then Peter saw him. He said, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. What's the point here? And this is where we're going to come into land. What's it to you, your friend who's got that calling, that person you compare yourself to on a regular basis, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. Neither martyrdom nor a long life in its fullness is the point. We're missing the point entirely. If we go, I'll be crucified for you, Jesus, as well. Or if we go, I want to just live so long so that I can honor you. We missed the point. We missed the point entirely. The point is that each of us have a unique individual calling, and each of us have our own us-shaped hole in the Great Commission to fill. And if you walk in diminishment and if you continue, if we continue to live under the lies and coping behaviours and deficits and traumas and shame and other insecurities that we may have grown up in and it might be struggling to shake off, then we're actually, the world is going to miss out the U-shaped hole that the Great Commission has in it. What a privilege. What's Who receives the well done of heaven? It's just the good and faithful servant, isn't it? And what's Jesus saying, I want to find when I return to earth? Well, will there be faith? And what is success? Because success is the question we all ask ourselves. I'm sure church leaders and worship band members and uh, uh, whatever uh, uh, vocation you're in, or bringing up children, what does success look like? God knows I, I, I get cut up a lot about this in my own insecurity. What, am I a success? Are we successful? Someone once asked Sarah and I, so um, what's your success rate? My heart sank, but her spirit leapt and she just eyeballed the guy and just goes, oh, 100%. I was thinking, how on earth are we going to explain this? This is a guy who funds some of what we do and I'm like, oh, I don't want to lie to them. And she goes, oh, no, no, but Jesus never asked us to get people off drugs and out of gangs. He asked us to move to Mannenberg and open our home to those the world has thrown out, to those the world says belong in jail because we believe they belong in family and open our home up, treat them as sons in the house, introduce them to Jesus, love them unconditionally. We've done that with each one of them. We're 100% successful. And so let me ask you, how successful are you? Where success, the only metric of success can be simple faithfulness, to what the Lord's asked you to do. Because there's so much guff and noise, isn't there? People, I, I heard a quote recently that said, um, the thing about the church is that it's a bit like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. And it's true, isn't it? We laugh because we resonate. it. What if God wasn't into counting Christians and he was into weighing them? If kavod, glory, in the Old Testament, we're told is weighty. And if, as we leave our sub-kingdom personas at the foot of the cross and take on the prophetic and, and, and spiritual DNA that God has created us to be, then it would, we would expect, would we not, to grow heavy in the spirit. And the noise and the splashing around in the shallow end would say, oh, how many have we got? And what God's saying is, how heavy are you? How full of me are you? Because have a look, a couple of weeks later, and this is really final, final. I can say that a number of times, this is final, final. And, um, (laughs) sorry, I'm. Acts 2, Pentecost. A couple of weeks after this. What has happened to to the wet blanket? Well, he's turned into the rock. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Everybody is cynical and critical of these disciples looking like they're um, drunk, but actually they're just full of the Holy Spirit, flames of the Spirit. The first time this has ever happened. And what does Peter do? He stands up and he reaches just this game changer, this humdinger of of a sermon to the onlookers. Just this knockout message to cynics and critics. There's a new song that um, I was listening to that speaks about the church, the church of Christ being born and the spirit lighting the flame. Peter ushers in the moment that the church post-Jesus is born. The wet blanket had become the rock on which Jesus built his church. Amen? So, what about you? What will you do with your pain? Because if you've been in church for any number of years, you'll have grown adept at hiding it or polishing it. You know it's impossible It's impossible to polish a turd. The more you try, <laughs> the worse it becomes. But if all Peter could offer Jesus was his shame and his trauma... His aimlessness and relapse. His struggles with comparison. And the old lies and behaviors pre-Jesus that he'd welcomed back into his life. If God can use that in Peter's life to build the church on this rock of a transformed, spirit-filled believer, what have you got to offer him? Because he looks at all of that Puts it in a big steaming pile. He says, that I can use that. I can use that. He did it with Peter and he wants to do it with you. So in London or in Manenburg, from gangsters to accountants and everything in between, we've all got pain. The question is, what will we do with it? Will you hand it to God for Him to transform, or will you continue to try and polish it? Your deepest worldly loss can become your greatest eternal victory. Your deepest worldly loss can become your greatest eternal victory.